0: Warning! Warning!
1: Today's episode contains spoilers. SPOILERS! So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you.
2: Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go Deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary.
1: So, folks, spaghetti westerns are western pictures produced in Italy, and that means, like, uh, some people refer to them as cowboy films. Um, They were produced in Italy from the 60s to the 80s, and uh, they're usually films where the good guys aren't always that good and they often have the same themes as the kung fu movies that we've been talking about. Now, the Spaghetti Western was born in the first half of the 60s and um, it kept going until about the 80s. It got its name from the fact that most of them were directed and produced by Italians, often in collaboration with other European countries, including Spain and Germany. And... Originally, the term spaghetti western was considered derogatory uh, by Western uh, or even just foreign critics because they thought these films were inferior somehow to American westerns. And you know, most of them were made with low budgets, but several still managed to be innovative and artistic. And you know, although they didn't get much recognition even in Europe, they they still uh, have stood the test of time. And you know, in the 80s, the reputation of the genre sort of grew, and today the term no longer is derogatory in any manner. Um, although some Italians still prefer them, to call them Western alla italiana, which means Westerns Italian style. And in Japan, they called macaroni westerns, which us, at least myself, being an uh, American Italian, we call everyone calls pasta pasta, but we call it macaroni, and um, that's what they call them in in Japan. And in Germany, they're called Italo-Westerns. Um, it's often believed that the genre arose uh, in response to the enormous success of Sergio Leone's uh, Fistful of Dollars in 1964, which itself was an adaptation of a Japanese samurai movie called Yojimbo from 61. Um, but a handful of Westerns were made in Italy before Leone redefined the genre, and the Italians weren't the first to make Westerns in Europe in the 60s. Uh, Germany had a bunch of successful Westerns based on the works of a guy named Carl May, um, which were produced. And then uh, European Westerns had at least some of the right ingredients to be called a spaghetti Western, which was made without Italian input, uh, Being one of them being a British-Spanish co-production called The Savage Guns by Michael Carreras in '62. Um, But it was definitely Sergio Leone who kind of defined the genre and the attitude of the genre with his first Western. And then he had a couple sequels, which became known as the Dollars Trilogy because he did uh, for a few dollars more. And then, of course, the, the good, the bad and the ugly. And, you know, his version of the West was this sort of dusty wasteland of whitewashed villages, howling winds, scraggy dogs, cynical, dirty heroes, unshaven villains, that sort of thing. And one of the big things that Leone brought to the table, too, was that Ennio Morricone did the music for all of his films. And because his music was so original and unusual, it worked with Leone's vision. And uh, you know he didn't often use instruments like the trumpet or the harp or the electric guitar. He he well he didn't just use those. He also added in whistles and cracking whips and gunshots and voices and did all kinds of things that uh, some of which have been described as a rattlesnake and a drum kit. So uh, Marconi himself went on to score over thirty Italian westerns, and he, I guess you know I think he was a key factor in the genre's success. So um, let's go over on the table here. And, and John, why don't you tell us, you know, your opinion and growing up your experience with uh, spaghetti Westerns in particular.
0: Uh, well, I saw them on television in the eighties because uh, UHF channels and super stations like uh, TBS and WGN would run them frequently. And I always enjoyed them back then. I always kind of assumed they were made for kids because of the, um, The uh, posts, you know, they're all looped. They're not shot with any on-the-set sound at all. They don't. I think they record dialogue tracks, but they don't use any of that audio for the final cuts in any language. And um, I really, uh, the first one I saw was Fistful of Dollars, probably the best way to start. Um, Loved it. Loved the Leone films. um, Loved the big gun down. I really love uh, My Name is Nobody, the one with Terrence Hill and Henry Fonda. That yep. has a like, supposedly some a few scenes are shot by Leon himself. Yep. Um, love the soundtracks. I collect the soundtracks. In recent years, now that more of this stuff is available on home video and everything, I don't have as high opinion of it as I used to. Because uh, I always joke that these are you know they seem like they're written by twelve year old boys, but um, <laughs> but you know the, they have a visual style that's very engrossing and uh, there there's a likability to. But they made so many of them that uh, the bulk of them really aren't that good. But uh, there's, there's quite a few gems in, uh, in the genre. And um, as I've discovered in recent years, because I've watched a lot of 50s uh, TV westerns uh, from America, that the Italians were not as innovative and pioneering in certain imagery as uh, subcritics over here think they were so um we get we'll get into that later but you know overall i enjoy the genre
1: nice and seven hooks what about you
3: um it took me a while to get into the genre you know i mean i remember as a kid just kind of happening upon um you know i think it was it might have been for a few dollars more or the the fistful of dollars and you know it's like oh this is kind of cool but then you know oh there's a kung fu movie on let me, let me watch that instead um <laughs> but then i i think like years later once uh you know probably in the 90s early to mid 90s i had probably gotten to a point where i had amassed like you know a, my 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 video collection of kung fu movies was such was like all right well, where do i go from here and i was at the time you know this is pre-internet and you know, I, I'm trading with a small group of friends and one of my friends happened to be into uh, the Spaghetti's and he's like, you know, Hey, you into these Westerns at all? It's like, I'm eh, no, not really. Well, You got something you can recommend. And so he sent me a bunch of films. And the first one I threw on was, um, day of anger with, um, Lee Van Cleef and, uh, Juliano Gemma, I think his name is. Yeah. yeah. And it immediately was like, Oh, this is cool. It's like a cool film movie. It's a total, like student teacher dynamic here going on. And, um, you know, that's kind of how my friend sold me on some of these films. And yeah, there's, there's a certain kinship in, in, in the genres um, that, you know, you've got to be blind not to see. And as I watched more of them, I started getting into them. I agree with John that, you know, I mean, you could say, I guess you could probably say the same thing in a Kung Fu genre, that, you know, a lot of them aren't great. And, you know, I think over the years, I kind of like narrowed my love for the Kung Fu films to, to Shaw films in particular you know that being said with the spaghettis i mean i think there's probably like you know a couple dozen films that everybody always says oh you need to see this you know like a uh, bullet for the general uh great silence face to face like those are some of the first ones i saw and they were great you know some of these are really good but then as i started getting deeper i'm like yeah this, this, the quality started you know <laughs> to subside a little bit so i'm like well you know, maybe maybe I I shouldn't have started off with, with the best first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but you know I keep coming back to this stuff, and and uh, you know, I I do like them. They haven't really lost the the, the stuff that was good hasn't really lost much of its lustre for me. You know, I was talking to John the other day, uh you know, about Django. We were talking, hey, we need to bring this this film up for the podcast, and you know, I hadn't seen it in a while. And I just remember the first time I had seen it, it, it kind of like, I was already familiar with Frank Nero, Frank O'Nero. And
1: yeah.
3: having seen the movie for the first time, something was kind of off. I was immediately realized that it wasn't his voice, which was strange because I know in most of his movies, he does dub his own voice, right. but it was quite obvious that it wasn't him. So I just did that kind of threw me off a little bit, but um yeah, I mean, overall, as a genre, I mean, it'll never take the place of my shaws, but um, they're fun. I'll, I'll throw throw spaghetti on in a heartbeat.
1: Awesome, awesome. And Patsy, uh, tell us about your experience with westerns and spaghetti westerns in particular. Well,
2: western was never really a genre I watched when I was younger. Like, there wasn't anything that I was, you know, overly interested in. I mean, I had seen a couple growing up, like. Yeah, I don't even know if you, you know, I mean John Wayne stuff, you know, like McClintock, right? But like that, that's really about it. Then you know, I I got into some horror westerns, you know, like Bone Tomahawk, and there was another one I forget what it was, some zombie one with Henry Thomas from E.T. Um, was that the Borrowers? Maybe I'm trying to. Remember. It was like some weird, like they robbed a bank and then there were zombies. I I don't know. It, It wasn't very good. There was a ton of zombie crows. Like it wasn't great. Yeah,
1: no, that wasn't that.
2: (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think. You know, and then uh, the Magnificent Seven. I saw the original um, because I had just finished reading uh, Stephen King's uh, Dark Tower series, and the fifth book is heavily influenced by. The Magnificent Seven, which was heavily influenced by The Seven Samurai. So I was like, you know what? I might enjoy that. I don't watch Westerns, but I might I might enjoy that. And I did. Uh, I watched the remake of it. Um, but, you know, other than that, I really never watched Westerns. But, you know, when, you know, you asked me to, you know, come on the show and, um, you know, as, as a guest a couple of times and... <clears throat> I started really enjoying them, like, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the Gemma stuff, you know, uh, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, especially I've enjoyed. Um, Even though a lot of it, you know, we we uh, we we kind of make fun of a lot of the things that happen in these movies. But (laughs) I mean, every movie, there is no movie that is without flaw. So. Right. But yeah, like this, this has really been my my only, uh, exposure to, to, uh, you know, Westerns or spaghetti Westerns, uh, is, you know, watching stuff for the podcast. And one of the things I will always do is, uh, I will refrain from, uh, from watching trailers or looking anything up. So I just go into it, um, completely, completely cold. Like I have no idea what's going on. I just know I see the, the poster and like, that's about it. But I mean, with something like, you know, a, a Terrence Hill movie, like half of them is like him in a reclined position with one shoe on, like that's half the movie posters because that's half the characters he plays. It's like, oh, I wonder how this one's going to be different from the last time he played a a, a, a grubby goofball gun, gunfighter who's faster than everyone else, but also seems to have the gymnastic reflexes of a young Mary Lou Retton, um, <laughs> like But I I haven't seen any of the Eastwood stuff. Like, I've never seen any of any of that. I will say I was familiar with who Ennio Morricone was because of his work on uh, some of the Leone stuff, Uh, as well as um, one thing that I don't think a ton of people realize is in addition to Tarantino getting his his first Oscar for uh, Hateful Eight, which to me is an absolute goddamn crime that he didn't have an Oscar for, for composition. Damn you, John Williams. Um, (laughs) but he also did the synth score for the thing. Yes. And that being a carpenter movie and carpenter being known for his, you know, synth based, uh, themes. And the fact that he did themes to, you know, all of his movies pretty much, um, that comes to as a shock to a lot of people. It's like, wait a minute, Ennio Morricone, like the good, the bad and the ugly Ennio Morricone. Like (laughs) he did that, like that thumping bass synth score to the thing. Uh, I, I loved that when I found out about it, I thought it was great. Um, But yeah, like I I have, I am definitely, uh, especially compared to you guys, I am an absolute neophyte. Um, So I think I've maybe seen a dozen uh, Westerns.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about that on the show before. And, you know, I grew up, of course, in the 70s. So we had Big Valley, Bonanza, uh, all those shows, The Rifleman. uh, There's so many Westerns. I mean, you know, you couldn't throw a stone in the 60s without hitting a Western. Because there were so many westerns on TV, and my grandmother was the hugest John Wayne fan, and I, I think I've said this before, maybe not on this show, but you know, when Elvis Presley died and when John Wayne died, she cried for two days for both those guys, and you know that really spoke a lot to me, and and you know I grew up with all that, and I think El Dorado uh, is probably one of my favorite John Wayne movies, and um, but you know, growing up too, we did see on TV. The the Lee Van Cleef spaghetti westerns and the Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. And, you know, those were prevalent. And I think at the time growing up, I didn't know there was a difference, although you can kind of tell that something was different. Because the American westerns were, they were cleaner. The good guys were gooder, if that's a word. Um, (laughs) The bad guys were badder, you know. And um, uh, in the spaghetti westerns, it w- they were just grittier, and the good guys weren't quite so good all the time. And, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, loving Audie Murphy. I mean, one of my favorite Audie Murphy movies is called The Guns of Fort Petticoat, and it's such an am- amazing story. And it's just something that's not a spaghetti western, so we we may not cover it on this show. But um, there was just so many that came out, and it wasn't really until, like, I guess I was when I was in my twenties, like in the '90s, that I started to realize there what this was a whole separate genre that these movies made in Italy that were co-produced sometimes in in Germany and Spain and stuff were were different than the traditional American Western, and they weren't better, they weren't worse, they were just different, and I just love that about these movies and. Um, and I had said this before, and I think um, we had just actually recorded yesterday um, the fiftieth episode of my other show, Then Is Now podcast. And um, when I first came up with the concept of this show, The East Meets the West, I was, I was telling my son because he's co-hosted several shows with me, and uh, in fact, the first episode of this one. And when I was coming up with the concept, I was like, Well, I. I want more information about the Shaw Brothers, but at the same time, I want more information about Spaghetti Westerns, and I can't find any podcasts on them. I think I'm going to do two podcasts. And he was like, well, you know, Pop, those are those are two niche genres, two separate niche genres. Why don't you do one show and mash them together? And so it was a brilliant idea and i was like all right yeah i'll do that and that's where the concept came from and i little did i realize that the spaghetti westerns and the shaw in particular the shaw brothers kung fu movies not just kung fu movies they shared similar themes similar tropes similar concepts you know the good guys and the bad guys were very similar and and pat as you know as we've explored some of these films, I mean, we're only up to episode 13 now, but we found quite a few similarities between the spaghetti Westerns and the Shaw brothers and completely unintentional. I think there was one, there was one situation where we probably could have paired the Shaw brothers film life gamble with ACE high. Um, and we, we didn't do that because uh, I'm not purposely pairing the films. I'm literally, uh, I'm literally going down the list of the, the venom films and, With the Spaghetti Westerns, it's just we keep finding one, and then it leads us to the next one, and we love Lee Van Cleef, and then oh, it led us to Giuliano Gemma, so then we watched his movies, the Ringo films, and then that led us to do um, the you know, the Bud, uh, Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill films. And so we're just sort of finding our way through these films. And it's just like happenstance that these two genres, well, one's a, one's a company, the Shaw Brothers, <laughs> and the other one's a genre, the Spaghetti Westerns. They mesh so well. I mean, we've even talked about the show The Mandalorian because that, when you watch that, there are so many Shaw Brothers elements and so many Spaghetti Western elements in every episode of that show. It's incredible.
2: Yeah, I I will uh, also, because I didn't think about it. I was only thinking of movies. I did watch uh, Bonanza quite a bit. Oh, and, okay. Uh, it's funny because my dad's nickname is Blocker, because when, I thought it was because, you know, he's a big guy and he played football, but apparently when he was younger, <laughs> he looked like Dan Blocker. Oh, wow. So that's that's how he got the nickname, and like my uncles to this day still refer to him as Blocker.
1: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. I can't believe like that's the first time I've thought about bringing that up on a show about Westerns.
0: <laughs> so, uh, watching Bonanza, did you lose count of how many times little Joe got into a fight at a town <laughs> gathering oh, <laughs> good. And, and the girl that fell in love with him that uh, I right. did end up with by the next episode? <laughs> and well, if I you're... mean,
2: it, you know, I came to expect it cause we would watch this when, you know, I, I think I was, uh, I had a black and white Curtis Mathis TV, nice. uh, 12 inch with, uh, with uh I had one with rabbit ears and I had another one you see and that's another thing that like you know kids who are listening to this are like what's a black and white tv right uh, <laughs> um it had it was like an m-shaped uh like an m-shaped uh antenna, antenna yeah that kind of like it was connected on the bottom like it was it was weird but yeah know yeah, i you know and this is another thing getting up and turning the channels. Now, I don't don't know how old you guys are, but, you know, uh, uh, Rigor and I have talked about this a couple of times that kids now, they're like, oh, did you ever see Jurassic Park? Oh, wait, you mean that movie they came out in the late 1900s? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you want to feel old, just remember that... Jurassic
1: Park came out in the late 1900s. Right. I remember watching Bonanza going, wait a minute, why the hell doesn't Little Joe just turn into the teenage werewolf and kill the bad guys? You know? <laughs>
2: Oh, Oh, he never did
1: that—not even once. And you know, there's a there's a speaking of you know TV (laughs) westerns. I I loved the Rifleman. I watched that a lot, especially with my kids. When my kids were little, it was on at six o'clock. I think every night they had the Hulk on me TV, and then they changed it and they put the Rifleman on, and we watched that during dinner. And um, uh, there was a spaghetti western with Chuck Connors in it, and he's like he's like Terrence Hill. on steroids, because he's this wicked acrobat, and I only saw it in Italian once, and I've got to track that one down for us to cover i don't I don't know if um John or, or Seven Hooks if you recall that movie, but it's like it's like six or seven guys get together for some purpose, I don't know rob a casino or something, and uh Chuck Connors was like this insane acrobat in the film. Do you guys remember that one at all?
0: I think I know which one you're talking about because I, I think he only did one spaghetti western yeah uh, i'd have to look at the title I, i'm pretty sure wild east put it out because i reviewed it not long ago on letterboxd i just can't remember the title because the, the titles of these things kind of blur with me i didn't have a, <laughs> a good impression of it uh watching it this time because it's just kind of uh it's not ride beyond vengeance that's the american production that was rumored to have been i was originally supposed to be a doc savage movie um oh, kill them all and come back alone i think is what you're referring to with an enzo okay. castellari film that explains a lot right there Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i thought it was like it it's pretty much just an excuse to have a lot of great second unit stunt work in action in the last yeah. half hour and some people watch these just for that that type of thing because the italian stuntmen were crazy in the 60s but uh i uh that's about all i really got out of the movie at the time i that i think that's the one you're talking about though
1: Okay, yeah, we'll have to look that one up. But we've been on this interesting path, you know, like I said, with Lee Van Cleef and Giuliano Gemma, which Mm -hmm. I just found um, in my research on newspaper ads. I think, Pat, I think I might have sent this one to you. Um, There was a movie that I found that he was in that appeared here in America. I, of course, can't remember the name of it. Um, Terrence Hill, which he's actually going to come on the show, I think, in October. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bud Spencer and Henry Fonda and all these guys. Um, we will touch upon the Clint Eastwood films on the show. I'm saving those for like our, our big ones, like our 25th and our 50th and all those episodes. But um, Yeah, so, I'm
2: resisting the urge to watch them prior <laughs> to that. So I go in just... It's like they keep popping up. It's like, oh, you watch this. What about this one?
1: Right, right. <laughs> but like Giuliano Gello, what was his name now? it was He had a, a, an American name when we first watched uh, Epistle for Ringo, right? Wasn't it like
2: Mortimer, like it Wilson. Was,
1: it was uh, Montgomery Wood. I think Montgomery was
0: Wood. Yeah, Mortimer. I, it. I, was, like Moncom- I was like Mortimer <laughs> Wilson. No, that's not it.
2: Yeah, 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 like, like that's not even close. You know, but like, I get it. Like, certain guys change their names because their regular name isn't cool. Like, Mark Vincent is Vin Diesel. Yeah. Right, right. Like, again, not even close. Terry Bollea is Hulk Hogan. Yeah. But Lawrence Toriad is Mr. T. Like, that makes sense.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> in, in Gemma's case, it was just his name was too ethnic Italian. And yeah. uh, the Spaghetti Westerns had a bad critical reputation in the 60s. And, like, critics in America hated them. And uh, just probably because they were from Italy and you know the i don't think they like some of the violent aspects of uh they didn't like how sergio leone was bringing james bond type violence into westerns i think was right sort of the excuse but those films were very uh loathed by critics back then and um what you would do is if you had somebody whose name was way too like they sounded like somebody from rome you're just gonna give them an american name and hope they get by on that that it was Purely a distributor's decision, you know. Kind of like how Charles Bachinski became Charles Bronson because Bachinski was just too right, you know, too ethnic or whatever. Right, or, too or even or
1: Alan whatever. Steele is Hercules, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Or if you're uh, if you're into into wrestling, you know, Michael Higginbottom became Shawn Michaels, which fits his character much better than you know marketing. Michael Higginbottom as you know, <laughs> yeah, a, a, this sex symbol. I'm the sexy boy. Oh yeah, not with that name. You're not. Right.
0: Sean <laughs> yeah, Michaels. He sounds like uh, an actor playing one of the Hardy Boys or something, like Sean yeah. Cassidy or whatever.
2: Yeah, like you know, it's better sound. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's just it flows better.
1: Well, I mean, for God's sakes, John Wayne was Marion Michael Morrison, and yeah. he smartly oh, decided Wayne's to change it to John Wayne for marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'd always think of that um, that movie with Stallone called Cobra, where I guess his name was Marion in that movie. He's like, yeah, I Marian wanted a Colberti. I wanted a cooler name like Alice.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that that was Stallone tr- paying tribute to 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 Wayne without a doubt. Oh, I yeah.
2: definitely think that he uh, that that particular move. Not to get too far off track, like they came up. like, okay, he's a cop and his name is Cobra. Now, what's his real name? Gabretti Glenn you just got promoted
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going home I'm 100% sure that's how they came up with it (laughs) that's awesome So uh, uh, Patsy and I have been talking about doing a uh, sort of a series within the series called, you know, Outside the East Meets the West, because a lot of these guys were in movies that maybe weren't kung fu films or spaghetti westerns. And, you know, particularly Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, they did a lot of buddy cop films right through the 80s. Have you, uh, uh, John or Seven Hooks, seen any of those films? John, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I've
0: seen uh, most of them. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen most of them. (laughs) I've been collecting them really since like 2001 when the only country that was putting them out on DVD in decent editions was uh, Denmark. Wow. I I actually found a Danish website and ordered them. They're only like five bucks each. And (laughs) they didn't even charge me much for postage. It was like $2 or something. It was crazy. It was like, boy, that was the, the old days of the internet. But uh, and I even and because I had to order them in the Danish language, I I, I wrote an email I was like, can you guys understand my order? And they sent me uh, back an email in order, you know, in in English. Going, don't worry, we we got it. We'll mail it out to you, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I, I got really into those because I spotted their influence on Hong Kong cinema, particularly kung fu comedies and Jackie Chan, and uh, I I kind of picked up that the Terence Hill and Bud Spencer were. Their movies were very popular in Asia, and yeah. um, and in fact, Bud Spencer made a movie, I believe, at the Shaw Brothers Studio called Flatfoot in Hong Kong. So uh, one of those cases of them leasing Shaw Brothers sets to oh wow uh, Italian companies. So uh, that that was that's a pretty fun yeah. watch if you can find them. Those um, the problem is they made so many of those films like I still couldn't tell you how many Flatfoot movies were made. Wow, Pat, we're gonna have to check
1: it. that one out. <laughs> absolutely
0: yeah recently i was buying them off of um on blu-ray from germany before the whole COVID thing happened and uh the shipping rates were reasonable and uh most of the blu-rays had english tracks on them although they forced german subtitles on you um <laughs> but they're beautiful they're like the most complete prints of these films i've seen and i've gone through a lot of different editions and uh I said, wow, well, I kind of hit a gold mine when they put the English dub track on here. And then COVID made the shipping prices just unreasonable. So i kind of given up on that little hobby for a while, maybe until things go back to normal, if they ever do.
1: Right, right. Oh, that's unbelievable. Yeah, but, I, had yeah, no I love
0: those movies. I'm collecting the soundtracks. I'm a huge fanatic for, you know, Terrence Hill but Spencer films.
3: How long did that Flatfoot series last? I mean, it was like, what, Flatfoot in Africa, Egypt? Yeah, in
0: I mean... Egypt. Um, I think it went on until about 81 or 82 when he started making movies in Miami or regularly and, and went to TV with the TV movie series called Extra Large. And yeah. Philip Michael Thomas was his co star. And then uh, after Philip Michael Thomas uh, quit after a few movies, then it was Michael Winslow, the guy from Police Academy who does the sound effects. Effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they had really exhaustive successful careers and it's something Americans don't quite have a grasp of you know and even spaghetti western fanzines and stuff they hate these films because they think they killed the genre oh they made it funny and it's like well they became the biggest stars because there was nothing left to do in the genre by 1969 and there was nothing new you're gonna be able to do so you started seeing a lot of comedies and these guys just had the right formula and uh Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer made the most successful spaghetti westerns of all time
1: right right and we covered the Trinity films and um, what was the ones prior to that it was um Boot Hill uh,
0: cat and dog movies
1: yes yeah the cat and dog trilogy which I, I don't like those as
0: much I just watched Boot Hill in HD for the first time and didn't care for it at all but um, and God forgives I don't that's probably the best of the three and that's pretty good and Aces high is okay yeah they just didn't have their comedy down the, Terrence Hill was coming off being a Franco Nero lookalike cuz Franco Nero became a huge star the year Django was released and they had two more movies come out so they needed a Franco Nero lookalike for Django and what is it Django kills or finds a coffin whatever the hell it's called right uh, yeah Django ha- arrow...
2: straight to dis- straight to video <laughs> yeah yeah it's
0: like uh it's Django um Django rides or something like that i forget it's Django prepare a coffin that's what it is okay um yeah. it's on arrow arrow released the blu-ray and Terrence Hill got the role just because he looked like Franco Nero. And so somehow they figured out for a couple of movies later, hey, he'd be great for comedy. So, you know, it was a whole new career. But originally he was a Franco Nero clone.
1: Right. Right. And I think Terrence Hill managed to, you know, obviously carve himself a niche with that by j- just his personality alone. Yeah. You know. Yeah. He
0: went way past Franco. The, yeah. the truth like Franco was making comedy spaghetti westerns after after he completed the brute and the beast or a um, uh, massacre time with the Lucio Fulci Western,
1: then he oh, started yeah. doing
0: comedies with Corbucci, like the mercenary. Yeah. And then eventually Corbucci made movies with Tara Till that were comedies. And I, I actually think Corbucci is better with comedy than he is with straightforward action, but I'm sure there's a lot
1: of disagreement there. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. So, um, yeah, I wanted to say with Franco Nero um, for me, I I I probably saw him in Django as a kid, but I remembered him from Enter the Ninja. That yeah. was really my introduction to Franco Nero. You didn't watch Camelot? I probably did. Is that the one with Richard uh, Harris? Yeah, yeah, he's in Camelot, but apparently he's yeah. dubbed. Oh, okay. <laughs> I I was familiar with that, but it probably didn't interest me because it was a musical. But even though I do actually, I've come to appreciate musical in my adult musicals in my adult years, but. Um, Yeah, so Enter the Ninja, that for me, that was Franco Nero. And then when I realized he was Django in Django, that just kind of blew me away, you know?
0: Right. He was only working in movies like Enter the Ninja because uh, uh, Franco and I have a mutual friend who is currently uh, doing our third mic work on our podcast, uh, Eric Zaldiver. And uh, I've learned a lot about Franco from Eric. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Apparently Franco's cousin was his business manager in oh, uh, like the late seventies and stole all his money. Oh no. So Franco
2: had to that tends to be the uh, thing.
0: Yeah, the Franco had to go to like he signs contracts with Canon films and he does movies like oh well, the salamander was a pretty big boost. Uh he has he started working in America a lot to make his money back. So he uh he uh that's why he ended up in Enter the Ninja and he basically replaced Uh, although Mike Stone has come out and said that he thinks that the plan was to replace him with Franco the whole time. And they were just kind of doing a, what what they did was Mike Stone sells the Enter Enter the Ninja script to Canon Films. Uh, They go to the Philippines and start shooting with Mike as the star. Two weeks later, they fire the director and they fire Mike, but then hire him back for like twice the money to stay on as a choreographer and fight double for Franco Nero. Huh. And but Mike has recently said that that was the plan the whole time they had signed to deal with Franco Nero and they were going to they were going to do that anyway. But they did some weird thing where they made it look like they were firing Mike Stone in the beginning or something. I don't know. That whole story. Canon Films is a pretty crazy outfit.
1: Oh, yeah. And Shokusugi was the villain in that, right?
0: Right, right. And Shokusugi yeah. was the replacement. Originally, Mike Stone wanted Tadashi Yamashita, who uh, was the villain in the Octagon. Oh, yeah. And and had done Chuck some Miller. Toei films with Sonny Chiba and had done some films for Toei. And uh, Tadashi wanted he was like, no, I want to be the star. I want to be the hero. So Tadashi didn't get the role. So Shokasugi was uh, another local martial arts guy that uh, Mike just took with him. And Show ended up being offered a, a film contract. They were going to put him in Revenge of the Ninja and, uh, and give him his own series of films. That show leaves canon films after the next two movies. And signs a deal, getting a million dollars a picture for with Trans World Entertainment, Crown Pictures, and these other producers. So it's kind of funny how the show cashed out pretty quick.
1: <laughs> wow, I I put in a word to uh, Franco Nero's uh, uh, publicist, try and get him on the show. So I don't know if you could put in a good word for us with your with your buddy.
0: Uh I don't know about that. Um, Eric says he doesn't expect to hear from Franco again unless uh, Franco has to move from his condo in Miami oh. or something and needs his help. <laughs> you know moving boxes around or something Oh, but... we
1: can help a move of boxes right pat <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah
1: I'll, I'll help move some stuff <laughs> yeah but
0: uh, but uh yeah eric wrote the um they were going to do a new django film about 10 years ago and eric pitched uh, the idea to franco and wrote the script with mike malloy and uh, unfortunately that film uh the script got a lot of praise it was Django, basically an elder Django in the silent movie industry working as a uh, technical advisor and then he gets involved huh. with saving a producer from the mafia trying to move in on the silent film business or, or the movie business uh yeah i don't want to give away too much because i don't i don't i haven't read the script i don't know everything that went on in it but um i think it was in john sales's hands a few years ago but they never cleared the financing oh, so wow. it's It's kind of being orphaned again. If you get Franco on, maybe he can tell you about that.
1: And the only official sequel to Django from 66 was in the 80s, right? Was it Django Lives? Yeah. Yeah. I I talked to
0: Eric about it uh, just yesterday because I called him up. I said, I got to talk about Django. I'm not able to watch the movie again for the show, but I need some dirt. Like just to be interesting, and um, although I, I know the movie really well, so uh, apparently Franco really regretted shooting that Django sequel. Uh, it was filmed in Colombia, I believe, and it, the only reason he made it was was basically he just wanted to go fishing in Colombia. That's the only reason he made the film. And what is he, John
1: he, Houston
2: sounds like everything Adam Sandler does now. Right, right, <laughs> right. right, exactly. And it is a
0: very Hollywood of Franco there. I think it was getting to him, and um, the. Uh, the the aspect of the original Django film, which I guess we'll talk about in detail later on, um, in the film he has his hands broken, right? And the sequel doesn't acknowledge the broken hands at all. Like it's none of the sequels do. None of them do, except for a spoof scene in a Terrence, an early Terrence Hill western called Rita of the West. I guess a Django character makes a cameo, and he's got broken hands. So <laughs> the spoof was more faithful to the original film than the the. Official (laughs) sequel. So when Eric wrote the um, when he and Mike wrote the Django script, the new Django script, uh, he has Django with broken hands and that's a problem for the the character and he has to work his way around being able to win, I guess, gun battles and getting out of situations with broken hands. But he said Franco was like, "Why he got to have broken hands. And (laughs) it's just like well, because they're broken in the original film and they didn't have surgeons that would be able to to heal him back then and this is this is like 1910 you know it's like but why you gotta have broken hands he didn't and he figures you know maybe uh franco wants his hands to look very handsome on screen or doesn't want to wear that latex that you'd have to do to show broken hands or you know actors i i understand actors don't want to work with prosthetics and stuff but, hey, um, I mean,
1: Peter Cushing took care of it, you know, as a, one of the Frankenstein movies where yeah. his hands couldn't work, and he got an assistant to do the work for him. Right, right.
0: It's like that's why he was wearing the
1: clothes, right, or whatever. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. But, totally, uh,
1: it,
2: it totally it uh, totally reminds me of the 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 thing with uh, Bud Spencer getting shot in the head at the yeah. end of uh, what what was it Boot Hill? And then like the <laughs> next the next movie, he's totally fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like he got his head crushed in a vice or
1: anything. Yeah, who needs continuity?
0: It's Italian films, you know. So they're, they're too lazy to cover it, I think, is, is the deal.
1: Oh, that's hilarious. So since we've been talking about Django, let's let's dive into the film, um, which we covered on uh, the second episode here. And um, uh, First, I just want to jump to you, Pat, and, and ask you your opinion of this, because I've been dying to hear your thoughts on the film Django from
2: 1966. Compared to the other films that we've been watching recently this one was a lot darker a lot more serious you know like you get the feeling that you know Django is a very very dangerous man as opposed to you know watching Terrence Hill you know where yeah, he's dangerous, but like you don't get like, oh, this guy is scary. He's like, "Oh, I'm going to eat all your beans and throw bombs at you." Um,
0: <laughs> he's whimsical dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it, it's he's
2: kind of like you know, watching uh Cesar Romero as the Joker. Oh jeez. Like you know he's scary and like he's dangerous, but it's like it's hard to take him seriously. Right. As opposed to Django Where it's like, the first time you see him, he's dragging a coffin, (laughs) and all I could think of was Moby Dick was Queequeg with his coffin. He brought a coffin everywhere he went, just in case he died. It's like, well, uh, you know, and you know, the first people he meets start, you know, like, oh, you uh, looking to get put into that box you're carrying around? It's like, (laughs) he reminded me this character reminded me a lot of the Hound from Game of Thrones, at least the, 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 TV version where he's very dangerous. He will fight if he has to, and doesn't really have a problem killing people. I don't know. I, I liked this one, but again, this is one that I watched on double speed. So I'm going to have to watch it again,
4: <laughs>
2: but I, I, I really enjoyed it. He's definitely an anti-hero, and it—it it was, again, to me, seeing this character was jarring. Even, even watching Lee Van Cleef, like there was some jocularity to him a little bit, you know, some, not, again, not comedic, but kind of fun, right. you know, at certain points, you know, like he's sarcastic, you know, and and good-natured. To a, a, a point, but Django is just um, he reminded me a lot of, uh, I know I talked about it earlier, um, uh, Roland Duchesne from Stephen King's Dark Tower. Yeah. At least the earlier uh, couple of books, you know, like the prototypical protagonist from a Western.
1: Right. He's very serious.
2: Yeah. Serious, stoic, you know, has a very strong moral compass. Yeah, he might kill people, but. You know, he's also, uh, you know, it, it's, it's got to be the right people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Seven Hooks, uh, what's your first experience with Django?
3: Um, It was probably like you know, I mentioned before, when I first started getting into the Spaghetti's in the, you know, in the probably in the mid 90s. And I had a friend send me a bunch of flicks and this was one of them. And I remember I think I picked up a book. And it was something about Django itself that I think it's one of these movies where its reputation preceded it to maybe to its detriment to like, you know, like there was a famous coffin scene and he breaks out the gun. And I think, you know, maybe I was exposed to that hype in some kind of way that was almost like kind of anticlimactic when I finally watched the movie. (laughs) <laughs> um you know I I feel like the, the first two you know the Venoms and Django like I'm I'm kind of like talking down on both of these movies I'm, I'm
1: being a downer but um
3: yeah I, I it's uh I like the soundtrack who was it Louis Bacalov? Oh yeah. Um
1: that you know, song but, is just
3: iconic. Yeah, I mean uh it, well, you know he's he's no more a cone, let me tell you but it was yeah it's good stuff you know um I don't know, like as far as the Corbucci wet spaghettis go, you know, it's probably my least favorite. I think I even
1: like the Specialist more. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I had a question, Pat. Did you know what was going to come out of the coffin? No, I had no idea. Oh, good. So how did you react to that?
2: Uh, I was pleasantly surprised.
1: (laughs) 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 That's awesome. I mean that's such a great scene where he just whips out the machine gun the, the gatling gun out of the coffin you know.
2: Yeah. Well I mean it you know it clearly was uh inspiration for uh, if you've ever seen Desperado like you know oh, yeah. mariachi series. Yeah. Where he's got the 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 fake guitar and the other guy's got the guitar case that is a rocket launcher and right. the third guy has the the two guitar cases that are machine guns. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I was like, all right. there's a lot of different things that could be in there. You know, maybe it's a bounty. Maybe it's, you know, again, like Queequeg, you know, I bring this coffin everywhere just in case I die and I have a place to be buried. Right. You know, I thought maybe that maybe it would come into play at some point where it's like, aha, it's actually lined with metal and I can hide in here or I can use it as a boat or, you know, With Westerns, you never know, because there's always some sort of, like, super elaborate plan at the end. It's like, all right, we're going to lure them into Box Canyon. We got (laughs) snipers lined up every 30 yards. And so even though they outnumber us, you know, a million to one, you know, we still, you know... We'll use their numbers against them, you know, like 300. You're like, we'll lure them into the hot gates and that'll, their numbers will count for nothing. You know, you never know. I mean, there's always a box canyon or or, or something, right?
4: (laughs) We'll
2: lure them into
1: the river and
2: their horses will drown. I don't, I don't
1: know. Well, I mean, heck, even Igor used the coffin as a sled in the fearless vampire killers, you know? (laughs) So, um, yeah, so uh, John, tell us about your experience. I, I think you have a few things you want to say about Django.
0: Well, um, I first rented it in the '80s. It the uh, Mag, I think it was Magnum Video that released it on videotape to rental stores, and uh, I rented it a couple of times. I thought it was pretty cool, and then I read more about it on, uh, I think, in Craig Ledbetter's Euro Trash Cinema fanzine, oh, and okay, yeah. uh, and I think there was a there was an article by Hiroshi Higuchi. Uh, who was a professor scientist at harvard who also wrote uh fanzine reviews and essays about film and he wrote a thing about corbucci and django and i said oh i actually watched a really important spaghetti western i didn't even realize it and um <laughs> also it, it showed up again like clips of it have you ever seen the film the harder they come with uh, jimmy cliff the jamaican reggae uh crime film and yeah. musical it's uh there's a scene a uh, classic scene where the hero is in a theater and the crowd is watching django which is apparently was a very popular movie in jamaica and the uh, uh caribbean west indies whatever uh in third world countries it was a hit like everywhere except Ooh. america i think one distributor tried to release it in new york dropping the d and calling it django or something he changed the title a little bit but it didn't <laughs> it didn't really take but, um, I, uh, I read up on it and watched the movie many times on videotape. I bought the DVD when it came out in like 98, 99. I think it was one of the first DVDs I bought and, um, you know, still enjoyed it then. Um, some odd, uh, things about it. Uh, most spaghetti Westerns are thought to be filmed in Elmeria, Spain. This is one of those actually shot in Rome at, um, is it Elio studio? I think it's the name of it. Uh, there's a, uh, Although I talked to Eric about it. Eric doesn't even think it was really filmed at Ilios studio because it doesn't resemble the same Western set that you see in like the Sabata movies a couple of years later, which were also supposedly, you know, shot in Rome. And um, he said he's never seen that Western town set in other films. So he thinks it was actually a slap together, cheaper set than usual and the movie has a unique look like it's got the rain it's like rainy or muddy and dirty and blue it doesn't look like other spaghetti westerns for the most part it does it's got a very dark look and uh the the whole thing like uh patsy was talking about with the way Django is he's he's basically a very heavy metal character before there was heavy metal music it's very dark and he's the you know dangerous guy walking into town and uh dragging the coffin now um There is dispute about this, but uh, I believe the voice of Django is Fred Ward, the actor. Really? Uh, Hmm. Yeah. In his younger days, he lived in Italy and worked in Rome as a dubber on Spaghetti Westerns, and that is believed to be his voice. I've seen some – there is some disagreement about it. They claim it's another actor, but um, Fred Ward named his kid Django. And I don't, I don't think it's any coincidence. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think it was just because he was a big Django Reinhardt fan. I think it's because he dubbed the uh, Franco Nero's voice in this western that was like a huge hit that year, and it was even a hit in Japan. Like, uh, and it's iconically loved over there as well.
3: Um, I, by by the way, real quick, John, you, before I forget, you you're talking about the the harder they come and, and how, you know, the, the, a lot of people don't know just how popular spaghetti westerns and kung fu movies are in the west indies and especially jamaica i i found out the other day that there was a cop a very famous cop in jamaica he's still around you could look this guy up his name is uh, keith gardner mm-hmm. also known as trinity
0: huh.
2: <laughs> nice
1: that's awesome
0: yeah yeah they they love that stuff and if you get the lee perry uh scott compilations from like the 60s and early 70s of, like, the upsetter tracks and the dub tracks. They're always named after spaghetti westerns and kung fu films.
3: Yep. <laughs> <It's>
0: very persistent. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, Lee Perry has a track called Django Rides Again. And, you know, he just, and it, all it is is like a Hammond B3 beat dubbed down to bass or whatever. Um, the movie itself, I, I asked Eric about its origins since I wasn't able to watch it before this recording. Uh, I haven't seen the film in like 10 years. But, um, he uh, he said that what the story going around now, and I don't know what you can believe because Italians change their stories all the time. Well, yeah, <laughs> Italians are very Italian producers, particularly the film business, very dishonest people, and yeah. <laughs> they will they will rewrite history all the friggin' time. And uh, what he said was, Carbucci uh, supposedly saw a comic book cover at a newsstand rack of a cowboy dragging his own coffin. And he loved the image so much that he cobbled together some money, which means an uncle gave it to him or something and (laughs) got Franco and shot just the scene of Franco dragging the coffin in the muddy street. And then they took a break for Christmas. That's all they filmed. So they come back from Christmas break and Corbucci had collaborated with his writers and come up with a full script. So they started filming. They finally started filming it with a script and I think got the movie done in a month or something. And, You know, had it out and, you know, within a few months and it was a gigantic hit. And apparently when they were screening it in editing or the producers already knew they had a hit on their hands because Franco suddenly had two more spaghetti westerns lined up, which was Texas audio and Massacre time like they knew Franco was going to be the next big thing. Wow. So that there, there's the origin of the film. If anybody thinks, oh, well, the, there was some great, you know, like Corbucci was reading Moby Dick. Unlikely. He just looked at a comic book cover and said, "Hey, I got an idea." So you know, started started cobbling together this spaghetti western.
1: Let's make a guy dragging a
0: coffin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, I like I the like image. Let's let's write a script around it. You know?
2: you know, it's kind of funny. Like I, I do. You know, again, you know. Looking at the influence of uh, of what you're uh, you're talking about, if you've seen Django Unchained, there's a scene where Jamie Foxx is talking to Nero, and you know, like you said, they tried to do like a ripoff version with no D, and he right. even says he's like, "What's your name?" It's like Django. The D is silent. Yes. Like, <laughs> like I didn't realize who he was talking to at that time, but like given like all this new information I just got, I'm like Tarantino 100% knew that story. Right. Yeah. He probably like, did. That's all he did. <laughs> um, and like, anytime you see a jukebox in his movies, that's his jukebox yeah. with his music. That's already loaded up in it.
1: Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's like, awesome. Like the scene in death proof. Like that's his yeah. jukebox. Um, oh, that's cool. Or Pulp Fiction.
2: Yeah, Pulp Fiction, Death like, it's his jukebox, and those records are already, like, he didn't have to go out and get them. <laughs> that stuff's already in there, and he just likes it and uses it for his movies. That's amazing. But, yeah, Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, I mean, because they collaborate so often anyways, you figure there's a lot of overlap. It's like, oh, have you seen this? You should watch this. Have you seen that? You should watch this. Right. You know, And, you know, clearly, this film has had an influence on both of them.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And there was there were twenty six unofficial sequels, right? Or twenty five unofficial um, sequels to this movie.
0: I'll have to send you a link to uh, Eric who Did a video covering every Django movie ever made, and uh,
1: <laughs> is and it more managed, or less?
0: It, it's I can't remember the exact number, but it was something. I think it's only twenty six minutes long or something. It's not a long video, and uh, but yeah, he covered the whole stretch of those films and everything.
1: But I mean the amount of sequels is it more or less than twenty five?
0: I think it's more because of the retitlings. There's only one oh, okay. there's only one official real sequel, which is the right. one with Franco uh with the uh, clean, unbroken hands as a monk in uh, <laughs> Colombia and, um, uh the rest <laughs> went... are just they were they were probably started under another title and they just changed the title to make it more appealing to. Distributors in other countries because the Django name could sell a film real easy.
1: Oh yeah, they did that with all of them, like Sabata, um, uh, Sartana, all those mm-hmm. movies. They Trinity. they made uno- Trinity. They made unofficial sequels with guys that look like the guys from the original, just to cash in on it.
0: Yeah, Italians are ruthless. They're, they're just dishonest like that.
1: Yeah, They, they don't care. <laughs> now, one thing I loved about Django, the original, obviously, that we've been talking about is, you know, first of all, the iconic theme. I can't get that out of my head. Every time I hear it, it like it just runs in my head. But they, they even nestle that into the background music, which is great. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a scene where he shoots behind himself like Trinity, and this came out before Trinity, so I, I have a feeling that influenced that. Uh, oh yeah yeah Ter- Ter-
0: terrence hill was definitely taking the piss out of uh Django with that you know oh yeah yeah because he was he was establishing his own thing and i mean by that time he was pretty much making fun of franco nero's presence in film so right and nero was off nero wasn't even doing spaghetti westerns that much he was off doing
1: international productions and oh yeah, yeah. it was it was terrence hill's time to shine and oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there's so many hilarious scenes in this movie, but the one that stands out to me is when he's, he's trying to sneak the coffin down the ladder, and he he paid the the prostitute to change her clothes in front of the window, so she's, you know, distracting the bad guys. Well, yeah. he like literally, they have no peripheral vision. He's just sliding the coffin down the ladder. <laughs> I just love <laughs> that scene.
0: <laughs> it's a Corbucci humor come to play, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's um, switch over. Uh, We've been running long here. We're almost uh, two hours and 45 minutes here. So let's talk about The Stranger and the Gunfighter, which was also known as Blood Money from 1974. Um, Now, this was directed by Antonio Margariti, and it starred um, Lee Van Cleef. And it was a, a, a co-production with uh, uh, Shaw Brothers. And I think that was the reason I sort of chose it for the first episode, because I wanted to sort of have a bridge between the Shaw Brothers and the Spaghetti Westerns. And um, uh, let's start with you, John, you know, your opinion when the first time you saw this, you know, tell us a little bit about what you know about The Stranger and the Gunfighter.
0: Uh, I first knew about it because I was reading the uh, Marvel comic magazine, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, and I was collecting back issues. And in 83, that was really the easiest way to learn about 70s Kung Fu cinema, because they had all these uh, between the comic stories of Chang chi and Iron Fist and Sons of the Tiger. They would have these articles about kung fu films and the ones that were being released in new york that month and um that's why i first learned about this film looked up the leonard malton tv movies listing and i said okay this is a movie (laughs) i have to see one day and um i think i rented the rca videotape a few years later uh when i had a vcr and video rental store membership and i don't i didn't remember much about it i thought it was just okay and i was a big fan of lee van cleef and Uh, Shaw Brothers films but um, and of course it's pan and scan it's not the best way to appreciate it Uh, I did not watch it again until uh, you asked me to be on this show and I (laughs) happen to have a French DVD of the film uh, sold to me for a dollar by Dave Zuzello and it happened (laughs) to be widescreen it's letterboxed anamorphic Uh, it has the English dub on it but they force the French subtitles on you so the typical French obnoxiousness that you get from this sort of situation. Um, <laughs> it's only The print only runs 89 minutes. And I think the American version or another version was longer. It was like 100-something minutes. And uh, it plays pretty good at 89 minutes. I would actually say it plays better than it did in the longer version. I don't think longer versions are necessarily always better. Right. And um, my impression of watching this film... Only two scenes are uh, shot at the Shaw Studio, the like, opening and the finale, or you know the epilogue, whatever you want to call it. Right. And the rest of it's shot in Almeria, Spain, and um, it lifts the story from uh, a British comedy uh, called uh, Get Charlie Tully, I think is the title, or it's also called um, uh, Ooh, You're Awful. It was a comedy with Dick Emery, the British uh,
1: comic. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, and um, it, it stole that plot of the, uh, the clues to the treasure are on the bottoms of these pretty young ladies. And the heroes have to get photos or examine their butts to get the clues to the treasure, <laughs> and, which is in the Dick Emery film. And several movies rip that off, including uh, the Hong Kong series, the first film in the Hong Kong series, Aces Go Places. So it, it takes that plot. It's mostly a comedy it has a lot of these beautiful Italian actresses like Erica Blank and Femi Vanessi and and um, uh, Karen Shepard is in it. And it's uh, or is it Patty Shepard? I forget. Uh, it's Patty Shepard. And uh, like it's it's got Lee Van Cleef being really funny, which I think at that time this was made during the end of the spaghetti Western cycle. I mean, they were pretty much done. So they were only going to make them funny which I think for this film was sort of a mistake. So the only way to get Lee Faye Cleef in the film was probably to allow him to be funny. So I think he was bored with playing a Colonel Mortimer serious character or right. like the character he played in The Big Gun Down or Day of Anger or, or whatever. So he wanted to be funny and he's allowed to be very funny in this film. Uh, Lo-Lie was got the role or Loli, you, however you want to pronounce it. He got the role because he was a star King Boxer, Five Fingers of Death, uh, which was a huge hit in Italy and huge hit across Europe, I believe. And so he was going to be the star or the, the Shaw Brothers star. Um, I think that was kind of a mistake because Low Lee is not really the best fighter, not, not the best screen fighter. He actually has very little training in martial arts or athletics. And mm. um, he's kind of like, you look at his kicks, they're not very good. You look at his punching, it's very dance-like, like it was taught to him in the last minute. Uh, the fights are played for laughs. You know, they play like a weird moke synthesizer sound while he's fighting right. and everything. It's just <laughs> it's not really um, not really what they should have gone for, because you real, you want this movie to be uh, for a few dollars more meets King Boxer. And instead, it's more like a Trinity knockoff or a Shanghai Joe movie. It's kind of a lot of it's played for laughs. It doesn't become the movie you want it to be until the last 15 minutes where it's suddenly it's serious and there's some ass kicking and that's what you wanted to see the whole time (laughs) and uh, but it's still i find the movie very entertaining uh it's hard to dislike um and it's unique to see the film play out this way and it's very watchable at least in this 89 minute french dvd version Hmm. so that's that's kind of that's kind of what i think about the movie but uh yeah lollier sorry sorry to hurt people's uh image of him uh even Gordon Liu in the interview with, I think for 36 chamber of Shaolin on that DVD, he said the scariest part of making that movie was doing a fight scene with lowly because <laughs> Lo did not know martial arts and was very hard to work with, with the weapons. Cause he was going to get hit. He didn't know how to pull oh the God. moves and stuff. So, you know,
1: that's hilarious. Seven yeah. hooks, seven hooks. What's your experience with the stranger and the gunfighter?
3: Yeah. Um, <sighs> You know, I, I guess I guess as a DJ I kinda come to really hate the term mashup, but th- this is a really fun mashup and it's uh it's <laughs> the uh it's th- certainly a precursor to Shanghai Noon. Um yeah. yep. and it's it's uh when <laughs> it, it it's you're talking about Lole, uh John, it's funny because I mean, when you were talking earlier about uh you know when we were talking about the Venoms and King Boxer and you know Five Fingers of Death and how he kinda in a way for a few years he really was kind of like their go-to guy after the, the whole uh jimmy wang Yu thing you know he kind yeah. of left and, and then, when you were talking about this i'm trying to think you know like yeah, yeah he wasn't really the best fighter but i'm trying to picture jimmy wang Yu in there instead and i think he's he, lowly probably did a would have did a better job anyway um mm-hmm. um i could be wrong but you know it, I, it's 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 funny because i also i remember seeing a a, a, a interview with Lolay years ago and he was in english and as far as i could tell this was actually his real voice um which was a pretty rare thing i mean even you know, know a lot of people know but a lot you know all these films and, and the shaw brothers they just shot them all silent so even if you're listening to them in mandarin and cantonese chances are you're not hearing the, the actors voices anyway it's somebody else dubbing them, right which is why i never had a problem with dubs um listening to his real voice i could see why he never made it as an international star
1: i'll just yeah. put it like that um it's too meek sounding
3: yeah yeah it's not it's you know it's um
2: sounded like gilbert gottfried
3: <laughs> <laughs> i should know this john but i forget the guy that used to, to uh who the one dubber was that uh was always dubbing Fu Shang's voice.
0: It's I uh remember. I think it's either it's probably Chris Hilton because he always did David Chang's voice too.
3: Yeah, it was either Hilton or Savage, one of those two guys.
0: Yeah, well there's a guy, I think it's Warren Rook, I think is his name. I'm I'm not sure, but he also does the kind of light funny voice. Yeah. Like when you had kind of a smart hero. like a Fushing and Chinatown kid, I think is is Warren.
3: Yeah, okay. well, so whoever that voice was, if that was Warren, yeah. he's the voice that I think of for Fu Shang. Right, um, right. And I heard Fusheng speaking, like you could speak English really well when he was alive and hearing his voice. I was like, oh, no, like he probably <laughs> wouldn't have come across as, you know, but you're just so used to hearing like a, a, a certain voice to go along with the character. Yeah. So, I mean, that could just be my own prejudice of you know, being used to the dubs for over the years. But, uh, yeah, it, it was weird.
0: L- listening to Lolay was just like, you know.
3: Yeah, it, t- it took me a minute to get used to that. But you wanted like, Ted
0: Thomas film. voicing him, right?
3: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was a fun film. Fun
1: film But um, yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because, you know, Patsy and I have had some interesting conversations about, you know, the voiceovers. So, you know, Patsy, I know you have some strong opinions about that. If you want to uh, tell us about that and then get into your opinion of Stranger and the Gunfighter.
2: Yeah, you know, cer- certain times... You know, like the the inconsistency of some of the voices where, you know, you have like this, you know, big jacked guy and he's got like, you know, this really like high pitched, you know, I'm almost going through puberty 12 year old voice. Like it's so jarring and off-putting, you know, or you just have somebody who's supposed to be like this fun, you know, jovial character, but they sound like Bud Spencer. Like it's. It's it throws you off so badly. It's, you know, and obviously there have been lots and lots of spoofs and things, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, referring to, you know, dubs. But I think my favorite is probably in uh, Suburban Commando when The Undertaker speaks for the first time and he's got like this high pitched helium voice and Hulk Hogan's like. Oh, no wonder you guys never talk, you know, like, (laughs) you know, because you would have that in so many of these movies where it's like that voice. It's like, all right, what's the uh, the actor that's in the movie Well, he's six, five, two hundred and eighty five pounds, you know, big burly guy, you know, like again, like a Bud Spencer. And it's like, all right. Uh, who's doing the voice? Oh, we have uh, this guy, uh, Paul Rubens. He's going to do the voice. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and it's like, oh, like that, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. You know, you're not going to have, you know, Martin Short, you know, voicing Darth Vader. Like, it just, like, that's, the, you know, that sometime, that can really take you out of the immersion of a film. Like, the film could be perfect otherwise, But, you know, the sound is as much uh, of an atmospheric, um, uh, you know, uh, trying to think of the word I'm using uh, that I want to use, but like, yeah, yeah, an atmospheric element that, you know, helps tell the story. And if it's so jarring and off-putting, you know, like in certain situations, like that can work, you know, like you were talking, uh, somebody, I forget who it was, was talking about like, the, the, the sound to a fight earlier and like it was like the fight scene was scored with like some weird like you know poppy synth uh, it's, yeah
0: it's a, it's the Moog some yeah. keyboard effect
2: and it's like that's not how that's supposed to sound like right <laughs> or like you know but you know certain times again uh you know a clockwork orange you know singing in the rain that whole scene like where it's this weird juxtaposition of like a happy upbeat music in a uh but that like that's done intentionally kubrick did that on purpose to kind of juxtapose the action on screen with this you know happy upbeat song but when you have you know one specific uh musical cue that you use over and over and over no matter what the situation is like it starts to lose its effect and like really pulls you out of the film like you could be getting invested and in it. it's like okay i like this character i like these you know the interactions that they're having i like the the action i like the sets and it's like oh this music is just it's so wrong like why like what like you know if the uh, the end of uh, dirty dancing was set to some sort of like grindcore you know <laughs> like screaming growling you know norwegian black metal like it would not have had the same impact It would have taken you right out of the film.
0: I think the perfect example of the problem you're talking about is in the movie The Man with a Golden Gun. It had what at the time was the most amazing car stunt ever filmed and where a car does like a loop. It's going across like a (laughs) river and then it has like a music cue like like a a whistle and it ruined the whole effect of the stunt. It should have had like a a a John Barry whistle yeah yeah it should have yeah, had like he's a, a fly. Berry, i know exactly what you're talking about badass yeah. john barry trombone or something i don't know but it's like <laughs> it's just like and supposedly guy hamilton years later regretted uh allowing that in the film he wow. realized he'd made a mistake but it, it was an incredible stunt it's the centerpiece of the movie and then, oh, let's just take all the the edge out of this scene. All the right drama now. out. Yeah, yeah, it's all gone. Yeah. All gone. It's a goof. It's like a Looney Tunes cartoon brought to life. That's you know. Funny. You know
2: what I thought it would be like? You know, you know, like some uh, you know, like the Great Escape. You know, guy like guys, you know, tearing ass down a hallway, but like they have like the the xylophone skeleton running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like you know the or the scene in uh in Speed when they uh. Or no, you know what would be great, Thelma and Louise when they leap off the cliff and they have the slide <laughs> whistle and then they <laughs> land and then like they they play the slide whistle backwards it's like.
0: Oh, mm. I would I would have actually liked the movie if they did that, but. Um, <laughs> yak- or play yakety sax during the bully scene. There you go. The be like Benny, <laughs> yeah.
2: Benny Hill episode.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like just.
2: <sighs> and kittens do you remember the 50s jukeboxes hot rods malt shops and sock hops no not really
0: oh well do you remember that tv show happy days you know fonzie and richie and all like that a sit on it etc
2: kind of then join us for these days are ours a happy days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember sock hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. Are
3: you
1: a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. So, Patsy, your thoughts on Stranger and the Gunfighter?
2: Um, I was surprised that like, the opening shot of the movie was somebody's ass. Like that was, that was the first thing that kind of like threw me off. And it's like, every time he's looking at a picture, like they go back into it. It's like, this guy's like, he's like really examining her ass. It's like, Oh, I'm a priest, but I'm definitely banging this whore. Um, (laughs) After I inspect her ass, I'm like, what is going on? I'm so confused at the start of this movie. It's like, hey, you're breaking into my safe. Yeah, but stand back. Yeah, but you're breaking into my safe. I know, but just stand back. Oh, now you're dead. (laughs) And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but did you find it like a smidge racist that the the key to the fortune
1: was in a fortune cookie? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean... It made sense for its time. I didn't think anything of it. And everybody's name is Wang. Like, oh, you couldn't have come up with like a different
0: the the funny thing is, fortune cookies are not even a Chinese invention. They're like a Jewish they're like a Jewish New York restaurant thing. Like that's that's what I'm
2: saying. like these aren't even Chinese. What oh my god. And they wouldn't have had them at that time. Like, when did this movie take place? Right. <laughs> Before fortune cookies were invented. Well, the <laughs>
0: the, uh, the evil preacher looked like Serpico, like Pacino is Serpico wearing a, right. a shaft coat. Like, there's yeah. a lot of anachronisms. In the movie. Like, like that dude, like, th- I'm like, who the hell is this? It's
2: like, I'm just going to quote the Bible at you. <laughs> and then <leave> yeah. <laughs> with this, it's with his, like, oh, that's my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> <Like, laughs> and then like the, like there was a lot of comedy in this like the the guy that met up with the, the the redhead at the end was like oh somebody bonked me in the back of my head and she's like yes. no you just had too much to drink he's like "No, i know the difference <laughs> and of course he had that ridiculous voice
0: yeah they there's a lot of italian slapstick in there which i think uh one writer i, I greatly admire joe carducci said that the problem with italians and making westerns is they could never get the circus maximus under control yeah they, they went for the crazy stuff and i remember hearing that uh on the original script of fistful of dollars clint eastwood had sergio remove a lot of stuff that he thought was too ridiculous he said no that's oh, wow. stupid people are just gonna laugh at this movie so you probably got a better film just because clint went over the script and or the english translation of it and, and as you may have uh, read in the chris frayling book or or whatever that Sergio would show up on set, and there's photos of this wearing like a cowboy hat and <laughs> wearing like a gun gun holster as a gun belt, and like with cap pistols. And uh, Eastwood said, "You look like uh, Yosemite Sam, or something like <laughs> that." So
2: <laughs> I can just so. imagine—I I can imagine Eastwood going over the script like. Ah. Yeah, I think we can do without
1: the
0: pie fight, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's probably what happens. Like,
1: nah, nobody will believe that, shit, you know. And didn't we encounter that, Pat, in the uh, in Boot Hill, where this, like, these guys are having a fight in the middle of the street, and all of a sudden, uh, a parade comes marching through? Yeah,
2: like, what? And that had nothing to do with anything else. It's like, oh, we're having this <laughs> huge battle, but you know, the parade's got to come through, and right. the, like the the uh the grand marshal or whatever going through the parade like there's somebody in his way and he just clocks him with his baton and just like keeps rhythm <laughs> it's like what the hell is going on here
0: yeah those movies it, have dixieland jazz which i guess means the director was a big fan or something but all three but of it's those like, cat and dog movies have it again it's
2: completely out of nowhere like if you were watching it to be like oh i bet that band has uh A big part to play later in the movie. No, they're just here to walk through this fight. (laughs) Right. Like, yeah, but why are they there? They're there to walk through the fight. But what purpose does it serve? (laughs) That's it. Like, that's like, oh, they, uh, you know, and then you see all these like signs like, oh, big holiday or like big holiday parade or like, you know, it's whatever day. And then like they never pay it off. Like they never have the celebration or like, you know, the strawberry festival or whatever it is. They never have it. A
1: strawberry
2: festival. <laughs> oh, I, I was thinking of uh, Tuang Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie. <laughs> uh, but it's like it's like what? What is the? what is the event that would require a band and how did you not hear a marching band as just, like they just did they start right there like all right guys we're starting in this alley there's a fight there don't worry i'm the grand marshal i take my job very seriously if anyone gets in the way i'll clock them with my
1: baton all right sounds good phil Isn't get your tuba up to- Yeah, isn't he just supposed to point out the horse poops with his baton so they don't step on it? No, no, no. You don't let
2: that. You just walk right through. Nothing stops you. Like, these guys are the most dedicated marching
1: band. (laughs) And there are so many times where you and I have discussed that, you know, oh, well, that scene apparently was supposed to be funny, but it probably was only funny in Italy, but it's not funny to us.
2: No, it's irritating as hell. It's like, what?
1: It's like, wait, what?
2: You know, it's it's kind of like it's like all right, you know we have a very serious, uh, you know like take Casino Royale, you know there's this high stakes you know card game going on, and you know all of a sudden you know some clumsy waiter you know comes out and drops soup on James Bond's lap like it has nothing to do with the scene, right. but like hey it's kind of funny, isn't it? It's like <laughs> but it ruins the scene like it doesn't belong here like who thought this was a good idea
0: (laughs) they were probably um, I I often think they just read like Lucky Luke comics or something before (laughs) the take and they just come up with crazy stuff because they're bored Uh, I just know from a a friend who attempted he was writing a new script for uh, an Italian director sort of like his comeback spaghetti western and he said the faxed notes he would get like could you could you have more scenes of guys getting hit in the nuts you know it's just (laughs) like they they've never really outgrown that stupid sense of humor that they want to put into movies that they think everybody likes and um (laughs) he he actually came to the conclusion that maybe these movies are accidentally good which i would actually i would agree with
2: that's that's totally fair i mean there's uh you know one thing i think you know if this is what you're going for uh, then you missed all the fart jokes with like these guys, you know Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, constantly eating beans all the goddamn time. <laughs> right. There's no fart jokes. Like you'll put a marching band in, but you won't put fart jokes in. Oh, sorry, we are highbrow. Like no, well, uh, no. Well, they had well, they a little are, They
0: are in uh, the Second Trinity film. It it was probably the first fart jokes in in film before yeah Blazing the baby battles. yeah. Little Give that boy some whiskey. Yeah, yeah, but like that's that's. But the baby wasn't eating the beans, right? Like yeah. that's what well, I like. That's c- what oh. I noticed. Those films don't. They they make hints at it in dialogue, but they don't actually depict it. It's a weird. Those had a a strange, subtle sense of humor. Like, there's like a scene in um I think the film is Odds and Evens where Terrence Hill escapes on a horse and he parks the horse at a Miami parking meter. And, and he goes back to put a dime in the meter. It's just, like, weird humor <laughs> like that. It's, I mean, that's kind really of really strange, subtle humor that – and it, even in the dialogue in Crime Busters, they say, you want some gum? What's the flavor? Formaldehyde. I don't like formaldehyde. <laughs> it's just, like, strange. Right, that doesn't like, make any sense. But it's funny when you hear it. That's funny. It's like – it's there, but, uh, the Italian humor doesn't always translate, I think is the problem. You know? Right. Yeah, it's almost right. like
2: an idiomatic expression, like what we would find funny, you right. know, like how Jerry Lewis had to go to France to get respect. Right. You right. know <laughs> what I mean? Like, you know, they, did a, they like... did a spoof of him on, uh, Animaniacs where like, it was definitely Jerry Lewis, but like, nobody thought he was funny. So they shot him off into, into space and he landed on Mars and like, he had this rapt audience of like little <laughs> Marvin the Martian looking clones. And <laughs> and it was supposed it was obviously a, a direct analog of like Jerry Lewis having to go to France to get right. respect. <laughs>
1: But I mean, for example, you know, Monty Python, we find it hilarious and but we speak English and I can't imagine or have a hard time anyways, imagining people who don't speak English trying to understand a lot of the Monty Python humor. Not all of it, but, you know, some of it, it's got to be difficult to translate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that, you know, the translation convention is definitely uh, something that affects international audiences, like certain people will find certain things. Funny, like I know that, you know, when movies go overseas and, and they have to get translated, you know, things are changed completely. Character names have to be changed completely, you know, no matter what it is, um, because something is, you know, it means something different over in, you know, uh, a European country. It's like, oh, this character name had to be changed because it's actually the name of a sex act. So, you know, <laughs>
0: of uh, being that's, called... that's happened quite a lot, actually.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's why, like, that's the first thing that came to mind. It's like, oh, you can't call him Spider-Man because uh, you have to call him Arachno dude. <laughs> Having spent so many years
3: growing up watching movies in Chinatown theaters. I can't tell you how many times I'd be in the middle, like, watching a film. And, you know, during whatever scene, the audience would just burst out laughing and I would have no idea why they were laughing. The <laughs> subtitles didn't say anything. That was funny
0: to me. Because okay. it was a Cantonese so, colloquial joke. Or, exactly. Yeah. That's There's some right. slang. Like Stephen Chow movies, if you would go see those in a Chinatown theater, you would laugh at the basic stuff, like the slapstick, or maybe a, a very funny translated line, but they would laugh at a lot of stuff you could not pick up on. Hmm. Like The audience would be roaring during scenes where they're just talking, and and I I found out later, oh, he he does all these jokes about with Hong Kong slang versus Taiwanese slang and, you know, mainland China slang and whatever. And it's like the audience gets it. But a uh, you know, Guayalo is not going to understand it.
1: Interesting. Right. Interesting. And you know, Patsy, I wanted to bring this up because I wanted to know if you noticed this. Now, of all the movies we've been doing, they pretty much just end it like, like they defeat the bad guy and then the end. And did you notice that in um, Five Venoms and Crippled Avengers, they actually both films sort of had a little bit of a denouement at the end? I mean, it wasn't much, but it was more than what we've been getting in succeeding films.
2: Yeah, like usually it's it's like okay there's the middle of the fight and you know things are still happening like there's still action going on and we'll see two guys run away and like the guys that are running away like they just stop and play the credits over them it's like wait what Yeah like <laughs> the sad like don't get me wrong I don't need the lord of the rings where they have 15 different endings you know every time you think it's over there's another 20 minutes left right. um, I don't need that but like,
0: well, there was a uh, there's a funny there is uh it's funny you bring that up because in the 80s I think late 70s to the 80s Paul might know of earlier examples there was almost a tradition for every kung fu action film to end with the hero or comedy relief being kicked in the ass and he flies <laughs> towards the camera. You see it in (laughs) Wheels on Meals, a bunch of the Hong comedies, uh, a lot of different Cinema City and Golden Harvest action comedies will have that weird ending where suddenly there's flying towards the camera and it says the end or it says another Shaw production or whatever. It's just like it was this weird tradition. So yeah, it was a a friend of mine when he did a a comedy spoof of home video backyard cinema thing in the 80s. Uh, It was Damon Foster. He called it Hot Dogs on the Run. And <laughs> which was based on somebody asking to borrow a copy of the Jackie Chan movie wheels on meals, but they thought the title was hot dogs on the run. They couldn't remember the title. So use that for the name of the spoof, but he ended his spoof comedy with him getting kicked in the ass and flying towards the camera. Cause they all <laughs> did that. Like you will find a ton of them. They'll end that way. It's the strangest thing. That's oh, it's funny. like the,
2: the eighties, uh, the, the eighties tradition of, sitcoms ending with like somebody jumping in the air with a freeze frame or something yes yes exactly
0: yeah Yeah. toyota what a feeling and they jump you know but it's like (laughs) Like give me
2: some kind of ending like you know there were there was a couple i'm trying to remember which one because you know because everything is is very similar like there's a similar formula for a lot of these films where it's like okay uh where the last two guys left we're not specifically the heroes but it's like oh there's a shit ton of guys here we better go and so they they start running and then like that's it like they they haven't escaped yet they're still in the process of leaving (laughs) and it's over or i'm grievously injured you know but if you get me to a doctor i might make it the end like (laughs) what get me some closure Like, I need to know what happened to this guy. I've been following him for this whole movie. I'm really invested in him. And then it's like, it's like a cliffhanger, but like, you never find out what happened. Well, what's what's the ending? The ending is whatever you want it to be. Listen, I'm not goddamn Willy fucking Wonka. I need to know (laughs) what happened at the end of this movie to this character. Like, I'm not here to write my own adventure. If I wanted to do that, I would write my own movie. You wrote the movie. Tell me what happened. I kind of wrote myself into a corner there, so I don't know how to end it. So I just did. Right.
0: they, They leave it open ended in case they want a sequel.
1: Right, which I have at least in the Venom films, I don't think there are any sequels to any of those movies, right? No, they weren't successful. If they had been
0: if five venoms made as much money as Michael Hui's The Contract or the Jackie Chan movie Drunken Master that year, you would have seen a Five Venoms too, but you didn't because it was not a hit in Hong Kong or Taiwan.
2: But if it have been five Venoms too, would it would have been like six Venoms.
0: It, it, it would have It probably would have been Five Venoms Part Two, simply because the Brave Archer movies were Part One, Part Two, Part Three, uh, Part Four: Blast of the Iron Palm with Fu Xing playing a different character and somebody else <laughs> playing the Brave Archer. So oh, they they did so do weird. sequels, but they had to be real moneymakers to do a sequel to bother with that.
2: Let me let me throw something out about you know. This was a uh, it was uh, the Ringo sequel Yeah. Where- <laughs> They had all the same goddamn actors come back to play different characters. Yep, yep. <laughs> I was like, I, I'm watching it, and I'm like, oh, there's that. Wait, wait, wasn't it she his wife? Like, what? <laughs> huh? Like that? That's his friend. N- no, they don't know each other. Huh?
0: <laughs> they wanted Even- to do uh, Ulysses, the Ulysses myth, but um, they they titled it. It was probably Return of Ringo for distributors. Yeah. It's, otherwise, it was probably conceived as. Hey, you know this this guy's having a bad day or something. It's a or Western Ulysses was, or something. It was so yeah.
2: like confusing, and it just I'm watching the movie and I can't enjoy it because I'm like, oh yeah, I remember her. She was wait, she got killed at the end of the yeah. Segment. Drastically
0: yeah. different tone yeah. wise. They're drastically different movies too. And to even
2: fair. Ringo right. was like, oh, I don't drink. I don't drink. Hey, pass me that bottle of bourbon. <laughs> right. Let
1: me let me. He was drinking milk of, in the first of, one
2: yeah he only drank milk like they they're like oh you're gonna drink with us he's like oh yeah and he poured it on the ground you know and in this one he's just like oh sorry i'm 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 a i'm an alcoholic it's like but but why <laughs> like why are you an alcoholic like you were so staunchly against it in the first film that like you risked being murdered by the main bad guy <laughs>
0: Well, there's, um, it's uh, the same problem as with um, the Dollars. They call it a trilogy, but is Eastwood really playing the same character in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? Because he's called Blondie. He's not called Joe Monco like he is in the first two films. And Lee Van Cleef is playing Angel Eyes. He's not playing Colonel Mortimer. So can we really say it's a true follow-up to the two Dollars films? They don't I, I- seem to be related
1: without getting into the films cuz we haven't covered them yet on the show I I never thought of them as sequels to each other I just assumed yeah, me neither. they were grouped together so that was the trilogy quote unquote you know Yeah
0: United Artists came up with the male and no name for the posters like that yeah. In the movies he clearly has names like he's Joe Monco in the first two uh which I think Monko means one arm or something so uh because he's always got his his arm hidden under the you know The Rav, yeah, Poncho, or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, it was United Artists that just invented the man with no name because it sounded like a James Bond thing, you know, the spy with no name, or, oh, yeah.
2: I mean, they definitely, uh, they definitely, uh, in Futurama, they definitely riffed off that, you know, they have a character, (laughs) Zap, Zap Branigan. He's like, I am the man with no name, Zap (laughs) Branigan. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, that's how he introduced himself at one point.
1: (laughs) Well, we even had trouble when we did My Name is Nobody because when you were doing the uh the uh synopsis pat, it was like, Well, nobody told him to go there and nobody stole the money from him. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, you know, you you name this guy,
2: you know, you give him like uh you know, this it's a descriptive word, but like that's also his name. And so like you might as well have called him somebody. It's like, well somebody took the money and like what is this, a mystery? Like what do we <laughs> Nobody well, turns- took the money and nobody knew what was going on and nobody had an idea. <laughs> nobody the judge.
0: He does have a name, though. It's Joe. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so it's weird. It's like the advertising was always contradictory to the actual film.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: That's yeah, funny. it's it. Yeah, it's it's so frustrating because it's like, how do you describe this movie? It's like, well, nobody gets into a gunfight. Well, that sucks. I like gunfights in my, in my, in my uh, westerns. No, no, no. Like the guys, I'm like, I I think we were talking about. I'm like, this sounds like a bad Abbott and Costello routine.
3: Right. About to say third base.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Like it was so frustrating. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so we're well over three hours and I, I can't first of all i can't thank you guys enough for joining me on the show today and and patsy and um just you know sort of trying to bring people up to speed on what we've been talking about obviously we've deepened the conversation we've given a lot more information especially from you and john and and seven hooks it's been awesome i did have one last question for uh john and seven hooks and that was um you had talked about Uh, particularly john you mentioned voice uh voiceover actors that had Mm -hmm. done these movies are there any of them that are still around today and are there any that maybe we can get on the show as a guest uh ted thomas
0: is retired uh i understand he's actually in a retirement home is what i've heard i don't know for sure chris hilton is still around uh i believe he's a radio announcer in hong kong a lot of them like john cullen i believe is still in hong kong radio announcer uh you know uh most of the hong kong dubbers i think are still with us uh they live in asia they have different kind of odd jobs i guess whatever you get from british expatri expats you know basically moving to uh chinese territories um i'm not aware only two of them i think have facebook accounts and ted thomas is not as far as i know isn't uh responsive on his uh page um right. i think warren rook he, he has a facebook account up i'm I have to try to friend him, see if it, see if yeah, it blocks Ted, me. Ted
3: Thomas, as far as I know, because I'm, I'm actually friends with his daughter on Facebook, and she's, uh, put, put it like she's like, I think, barely in her 20s, maybe in mid 20s. He's well into his 90s. So he's, he's had fun for a long time, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I believe he retired to uh, looking at her page and he seems to have done quite well for himself over the years. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think he, I don't know if he's in a home, but I think he did. He's in Thailand or whatever that means. You know, oh, okay. So maybe he's still having fun for all of you. Yeah. He um, could be in Thailand. Yeah. Um, But yeah, he, he's a, just, just for people to, to kind of put the, the voices with the, the character. Um, Ted Thomas, I think is probably best known as the voice of Pai Mei, Priest Pai May from the, the Executioners of a Shaolin and the White Lotus, Clan of the White Lotus.
1: Oh, interesting. You know, and one thing that Pat and I have talked about on the show is that, you know, like, like he mentioned, you know, you've got these voices sometimes that don't fit the character, and there are certain movies where the voices perfectly fit them. Like, I think the voice actors in um, uh, Five Venoms, fit Philip Kwok and Chiang Shang and a lot of them. And was there a reason why they didn't have the same English actor dubbing the same Chinese actor? Was it a contract or availability or, you know what I mean?
0: Well, Ted Thomas's outfit predominantly worked Shaw brothers and a lot of independent productions and golden harvest eventually had their own dubbing crew. So like, Roy Chow would always be the voice of Jimmy Wang Yu. Like Jimmy Wang Yu makes a movie in Australia, a man from Hong Kong. It's Roy Chow's voice dubbing him as he talks to George Lazerby and Hugh Keysburn. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Roy Chow actually has a role in Indiana Jones and in the uh, Temple of Doom in the beginning as the mob boss in Shanghai. Oh, um, yeah. yeah um, the, uh, so what they would do is, it just depended on who was working that week, I think or because they would apparently dub these in like two days or two nights. And they did it without credit because a lot of those guys were in radio broadcast unions and they did not want their names popping up as having done this work for Shaw brothers. Cause then they'd have to probably fork over a percentage to the union or, or something, or it was a union violation. So they would just get some beers and they'd have the translated script and they'd work with the films for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And if they got them done in one, one day, then, um, hey, they went out and partied. So um, they were cranking the the dubs out. Uh, I don't know why there wasn't like a solid consistency, but I noticed that Chris Hilton always tends to voice David Chang. Um, certain other voices would do t Long and uh, Warren Rook would do uh, Fu Xing and, you know, more often than not. But um, there was no sense of continuity with it probably because they just weren't thinking about it they were like okay this this is gonna go to england let's just slap a dub on it uh it's gonna be sold to america and some other territories let's just put a quick dub it doesn't really matter who does what you know who wants to dub this guy who wants to dub that guy
2: i think you also mentioned that you know they would be filming you know multiple uh movies concurrently so it's like you know like okay well we've got three movies going right now We can't have one guy doing all three because we want to make sure that, you know, this movie stays consistent. So here's one script for this group, one script for this group, one script for this group.
0: Right. And it depends on what was ready. Hey, maybe Kid with a Golden Arm was started after another movie, but it's ready first. Okay, we're going to send you the dialogue because all they did was dub the dialogue clips. They didn't dub like the action scenes or anything. They just had. I think Ted Thomas said it was something like maybe. 30 minutes of dialogue footage that they had to dub and each one they'd have black and white clips and they would just dub over the dialogue with the, using the script. And that was it. You know, it wasn't, um, wasn't something they were consistent about. Cause also they didn't think about that sort of thing back then. They didn't care how this was going to play in America. They just like, okay, we just got to have an English version ready. You know, let's, there's right. no real care and consideration done to it. I think when you compare it to the, um, Okay, Dieter Mintz, this uh, distributor in Germany, would have his Hong Kong movies dubbed in Rome. He didn't want to use the Hong Kong dubbers. He didn't like the work they did. So um, in Rome, they would be dubbed by the same guys who dubbed the Argento and Fulci movies. And in some of them, David Hess actually dubbed some voices and some Kung Fu flicks. Oh, wow. uh, Really? Exploitation Act, yeah. And um, so they'd have guys like –
2: Yeah, Last House on the Left.
0: Right, right. So Ed Mannix, who dubs Bud Spencer in a lot of those films, uh, he's got the kind of old man voice. He would dub characters. And Larry Dolgan, uh, who had worked in Rome since 1970, would dub characters. And I noticed there seemed to be more characters, particularly if films were produced by Godfrey Ho. Because the Godfrey Ho films often have the worst dubbing I've ever heard. Like they, they do a lot of, instead of bridging the mouth movements with words like, or phrases like, but still, or so then, which is what hmm. Ted Thomas would use to kind of keep the, the flow going in the dialogue. Uh, they would just have characters go, uh, what right. is uh, your name? Like, those are the real bad dubs that are easy to <laughs> mock. And you'll find some YouTube channels that make fun of those dubs pretty well.
1: It's funny that you said that because, you know, growing up, we used to collect, um, you know, VHS tapes of of not only Hong Kong films, but like Japanese animation. And then the ones that were translated into English that we got on TV, like, you know, like you said, Grandizer, uh, Force 5, Star Blazers, every so often a character would go, huh? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And my friends and I would always joke about that because obviously that was just a translation filler, you know?
0: (laughs) Right, right. Uh, One obnoxious one for a Chang Che film is House of Traps. I actually can't stand the dub on that one.
1: Oh, okay. We haven't, we haven't covered that one yet. Well, so. those
0: every sentence from every character starts so just, hey! Like, <laughs> is, it wasn't done by Ted Thomas's crew. It was done by a, a second dub team they used who also did Legendary Weapons and did uh, Five Element Ninja. And I never really liked their work all that much, although their work on Five Element Ninja I kind of love because it's funny. But uh, a lot of their other dubs I never cared much for
1: right right so one last question for you guys and uh, I know Patsy's answers to this because we talked about it but I, I'm i just dying to know your you guys's opinion on uh, the, the Shaw Brothers film Heaven and Hell <laughs> or aka Shaolin Hellgate you want to go first John uh,
0: I still haven't watched my image DVD but I was uh, weirded out by it when I tried to watch it like 12 years ago
3: <laughs> I think it's Chang Chae Citizen Kane <laughs>
0: Well, now I gotta watch it. That's what I'm watching tonight. I'm watching Heaven and Hell. <laughs> but just watch the Ted Thomas
3: dub. That's that's the only thing. Is, is it on
0: there? Is it even have a Ted Thomas dub? Yes, yes, they do. Oh, yeah, cool, I'll, cool. I'll send it to you if
3: need be. Um, it's great. I love it. Um, it's. Um... It's a lot of fun. It's it, it's. I mean, you got to be in the right mood for something like this. I mean, first of all, it's it, and, and, and actually having read Cheng Che's autobiography, he actually speaks about making the film, and it's like what he wanted. He was really trying to do something, probably pretty pretentious and artsy. He was trying to like make this film um, while uh, you know three different statements, like and three different acts. Um, you know, right. d- the heaven part. Um, I don't know if it was supposed to be, uh, the, you know, Peking Opera. Uh, this, the, the, the second part with, uh, on Earth with uh, Jenny and Alexander Fusheng was supposed to kind of be a take on modern dance, which like is why West, you got that really Story. cheesy, almost like Batman scene with these guys doing these, like, you know, Bob Fosse moves. Um, yeah. And then, uh, then this, but, you know, I, <clears throat> the movie doesn't really start for me until they get to hell. And then when they get to hell, it's just like, it's the most bonkers thing you've ever seen. Um, it's really it's like Chang Chang on LSD it's just like right. you know and the, the sets it's like I, they're completely I mean I, one of the things I love one of the many things I love about the Shaw Brothers movies are their sets I mean they're obviously very fake and phony it's just like you kind of walked on a on a, a you know in the back lot of uh, Paramount where they're shooting Star Trek or something but it's like <laughs> 10 times cheaper um, you know and I think John and I were talking about this recently too is you could you know one of the it's great that these movies are in HD now, but it's also you can all the the blemishes kind of come out too. You know, you can see the uh, the ripples and the the, the the cardboard sky.
0: Right. You know, um, the wig glue. Wig the wig glue. Worst, oh, the paste gum for the sideburns and stuff. It's yeah. just a, <laughs> yeah. It's very yeah, obvious. No, it's, Heaven and Hell
3: is a lot of fun if you, you're in the right mood for it. It's if it's, it's, it's got a it's got it's got a
0: lot of replay value for me put it that yeah, way. Definitely alter your five.
2: consciousness. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Looking at it on my shelf right now, I have not even opened the plastic on it. So, Oh, if you do have the DVD, I don't think they do include the dub, so I'll, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Yeah, you may have
3: to
1: send that to me. i got to see it with the dub. Yeah, I have I will, a DVD that I think was dubbed. I will uh,
2: I will say, I will recommend to you gentlemen, because I've already recommended it to, uh, to Rigor. Uh, probably the greatest dub that I've ever seen, and it's free on YouTube. It's called The Third Gathers, The Backstroke of the West, which is the bootlegged version of uh, Star Wars Episode Three, uh, Revenge <laughs> of the Sith. It's translated poorly from Chinese. Like, how poorly? Uh, the scene at the end with uh, Vader screaming no uh, instead is do not want. <laughs>
0: Was it it done for Malaysia? Possibly.
2: I I don't know, but it's absolutely amazing. Like, there's one, there's one scene at the beginning where the uh, when uh, Obi Wan and and Anakin are flying through space in a little spaceship, they're getting attacked by all the droids, and Obi Wan just goes,
0: "Do you fuck on I?" It's like, (laughs) (laughs) what? Okay, I got it. I got it saved. Found it on YouTube.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's one more hilarious. What's it called? backstroke
1: of the west the third gathers <laughs> it is the, the the funniest thing you'll ever see it was so it's like it was translated and then retranslated back into english so they lost everything <laughs> like some like, creeping unknown <laughs> like, yeah yeah
2: sometimes you can like like it's like the farthest edge of of like it's like uh, you can almost get that that's what they that's what they're supposed to be saying like it kind of fits you know it's like maybe like it's like <laughs> the smallest gist of something it's like someone when you're drinking wine and someone's like oh do you taste the uh, the hint of pine needles in the in the back of your palate and you're like <laughs> yeah <laughs> like that's how this translation is it's like okay i think that's what they're trying to like you know somebody was like oh i think it's a trap and it's like oh the conflagration is you know imminent or something it's like wait what (laughs) What? like that's not even the right word like but like you kind of get the context like it it, oh it's so funny it's so funny (laughs) you don't even have to watch the whole thing just kind of like skip back and forth and just watch different scenes and like the scene at the end when Anakin confronts Obi, or Obi Wan confronts Anakin, or or Yoda, oh anything with Yoda is goddamn gold. Like,
0: right. <laughs> so, this will probably be the only way to get me to watch Revenge of the Sith again. So, oh, I mean, yeah, uh, no kidding. I'll huh? have to look at it in, in piecemeal.
2: <laughs> again, just find a couple of the scenes. Like anything with Yoda is great because of like his syntax to begin with. Like his his speech patterns are just so like off, and then you try translating that into tri- Chinese and then back into English. Oh, good luck!
0: <laughs> it actually sounds like it was probably done for Malaysia. If it's if it's legit, if it's not some fan really witty fan experimentation, but uh, that's that's what it sounds like. It's like it was done for Malaysia.
1: Yeah, it's awfully long for a fan experimentation. <laughs> yeah, somebody
0: did a lot of work. Very devoted to their cause.
1: Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, apparently, from
2: from what I understand, like I pulled it up on the the Star Wars page. Uh, like, there's a couple lines that says uh, the subtitles are translated from Chinese rather than using the original English script. There are, however, several lines added that indicate it was not from a machine translator. For example, just as Count Dooku predicted, becomes kill these two Republic's bodyguard. And have the protocol droid's mind wiped becomes the protocol droid is my wife. (laughs) So it's not just improper uh, translation. It's also, I didn't quite hear that because it was playing in the other room while I was trying to type it on my computer and a train was going by.
0: Oh, hell, that was probably done for Taiwan or or something uh, because... There was this Jet Li film called Dragon Fight, and parts of it are in English because it was filmed in San Francisco. So they have some of the characters allowed to speak English in the film. And there's a scene where some thugs say, Let's go kick some ass. And in the subtitles, it says, Let's go express ourselves righteously.
2: <laughs> I mean, again, like, that's not terrible. Like, it
0: depends yeah, on the Yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> like, depending on the character,
2: ourselves. if it's like that priest guy from, uh, from, yeah. Uh, The gunfighter thing there, right? Like it's like oh let's go express ourselves righteously, which means like let's go kill the infidels. Like yeah, I I I can I can I'm okay with that. That's not horrible, but like let's go kick some ass and uh, let us go you know infiltrate their rectums. Like that would be a little bit different.
0: Right. (laughs) The feeling is certainly the same. I guess I get your intent. The intent is the same. Yeah. yeah,
2: kind of like Sandra Bullock in in Demolition Man the whole time. He really <laughs> meshed his meat.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh man. Well guys, it's been awesome. It's we've right. done a really I think the longest show here ever so far. Oh yeah. Uh I can't thank you guys enough for doing this uh primer on uh, the East meets the West, and trying to catch people up on the, what we've been talking about, and obviously, like I said before, we, you guys have been adding new things in, and and you know, sort of, really deepening the breadth of the Shaw Brothers and Spaghetti Western conversation that Patsy and I have going on here. So, thank you very much, guys. Um, Seven Hooks, do you want to give us some, uh, any anywhere we can find you online or a website or anything that you you got going on? No. although i would
3: like to uh plug a friend's book if you're interested in shaw brothers films probably the best english language written in my opinion book on shaw brothers films period um the uh biography of alexander Fushang by terence j brady highly recommended available on amazon
1: awesome awesome we'll put that in the show notes and john what about you uh just midnight movie cowboys uh.com
0: just check out the podcast uh, a lot of people check it out and uh don't come back because we tend to offend probably 40 percent of the people who tune in but uh <laughs> when people get into the show they get really hooked into it so
1: you know awesome awesome yeah i'm, I'm hooked into it myself and uh i can't wait to have you on then is now that's gonna be fun
0: yeah yeah looking forward
1: to it so all right and then pat uh where can we find you online well you
2: know as uh <clears throat> as you know, the East meets the West is part of the darkening podcast network. So you can find me there. You can also find me on uh, Monday nights doing our live show, um, uh, creator spotlight. Some of our, our recent interviews have been with the, uh, some of the cast of Greece, uh, Bruce Valanche. Uh, we've got some great stuff coming up. Um, you can find me every Thursday on Throwdown Thursday. You can find me, uh, once a week, uh, depending on the day, usually a Friday for the loudest sports show. You can occasionally find me Wednesdays on the, uh, the dorkening shows. Um, and sometimes on shark bites, my, uh, overflow podcast, where I do a bunch of interviews and whatnot, uh, that don't quite fit into any of the other shows that I do. Uh, you can also find my articles on, uh, throwdownthursdaypodcast.com. I just did a Bruins postmortem. I have uh, I've done articles on whether or not uh, Die Hard is a Christmas movie, and what <laughs> makes a Christmas movie, um, lots of different uh, lots of different things, and uh, I think that's oh yeah, and you can also find me if you're a sports memorabilia person. You can find me on uh, Major Sports Drops. Uh, we are currently running uh, a series of mini games for a Tom Brady authentic helmet. Um, Excellent. <laughs>
1: find then is now podcast at our website havenpodcast.com i'm sorry you can find the east meets the west at our website havenpodcast.com where you'll find our sister show then is now podcast um, you can send your thoughts on today's episodes to the East meets the West 42 at gmail.com and um, you can also check out our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user/ uncle Death one where you'll find all our podcasts there in video form plus a bunch of other fun stuff so please um, and if you can go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more people can find the show We're on all the podcasting apps including uh, Spotify iTunes and Stitcher as well as pretty much every single app out there so uh please like i said leave if you like what you're hearing leave us a great review and uh join us again on our next episode of the east meets the west the east meets the west is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only all clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders all
4: other material is copyright jupiter media